You have reached podcasts. Oh. Press one for fun fact. Press two for fun lie. Hmm. Beep. Fun lie. Penguins can fly under duress, but prefer to swim. Huh. I never knew that. Thank you very much, fun lie. <laughs> My first fact is a holiday-related fact. We're getting into that time of year. We are. We we're in, in the U.S. Well, when it, hold on. Canadian Thanksgiving is in August, right? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you had me. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, no. So we've had our Thanksgiving pretty recently, and then um, by the time this show, the episode will be out, the American Thanksgiving likely will be, likely an event in the past. Yeah, or or slightly past. And Halloween um, has happened. Halloween has happened, and then obviously, you know, uh, more things are year-end coming. holidays, more coming, and um, and so I, this had come to mind as as Canadian Thanksgiving passed on, and I wanted to kind of understand you can just this. call it Thanksgiving because you're a Canadian, real Thanksgiving, well, just Thanksgiving, um, I think, just 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 Thanksgiving. <laughs> Fun fact: cranberry sauce cans are labeled upside down, that is, with the opening on the bottom rather than the top, so you can more easily get the sauce out of the can. Okay, but is this like a is this like a like a metaphorical puzzle? Is this like a paradox of of slippery linguistics? If the can is labeled in a way to get you to open the quote unquote bottom, is that not in effect the top? Yeah. So this is this was part of what I grappled with and why I found this interesting. Yeah. So you if you've seen modern cranberry sauce cans, certainly like the big brand ones, you you see the can and it's like quote unquote upside down in that like the opening is on the bottom. You look if you look at the label, normal ways up, the opening is on the bottom. And you can turn it upside down, obviously. But there's a little bit of like uh is it labeled upside down or is the can upside down? But like people will put the can li- with so the label reads up. And so rather than like, you know, it hasn't canned upside down. They just put the label upside down and then you put it right side up. And so you're kind of doing the work for them. Is there a brand of cranberry sauce you're thinking of here? Because I'm not sure if all cranberry sauces are functioning this way. Yeah, I'm sure that there's some brands. that don't. So like Ocean Spray, at least in Canada, is like the, the default most common. Actually, that's a, I hadn't done that level of research. Do they have Ocean Spray cranberry sauce in in the U.S.? Or they, I don't know. Do, no, are they, you up on they your... Do. They, they do. Okay. Uh yeah, so now I'm because I'm trying to find. Okay, so I'm looking at this bottle of ocean berry cranberry sauce, but it has to be a can. Hard. I, I mean, can. Yeah, sorry. I'm trying to figure out wh- where the how to know that that's the top versus the bottom. Well, so the top is like um, the well, okay. the The part that you open has like a lip and an indent. Okay, so that's on the top. Around. That's on the that's normally on the top of a can, yeah. but for the ocean spray cam- cranberry sauce. And I think other kinds of cranberry sauce now, because they print the label upside down, you sort of, because you would stock both at the store and on your own shelf, you tend to put the label so the text reads ver- uh, normal orientation. And so the openable part of the can is on the bo- is on the bottom the way that it's put on the shelf. This is so weird. Okay, so I'm looking at this can. It's kind of hard to tell in like a side shot. Sure. But it, do- it does look like, I mean, and there's no like arrow, at least on the front like pointing down saying like open from here mm-hmm. but what you're saying is because i misunderstood you because like i was thinking of like the ketchup bottle you know where like the like typically the opening part would be on the top but the heinz ketchup has like ketchup bottles where the label is printed 
what you would call upside down. Yeah, yeah. The, those squeezable ketchup bottles do this, and actually for the same reason, right? They do it for the same reason. Yeah, to reason. make it easier to come out. It means you come out because then the air bubble, if you put it so that the opening is in the bottom, the air bubble will go to the top and then the, the product is right where you open it. So the yeah. cranberry sauce is really important um, because you want to make sure you can open the can and then you can shake the can of cranberry sauce out and then you get like the jelly has like the ripples from the edge of the can still indented in it. Yeah. You know, to give it that extra delicious Yeah, I mean, shape. That's, otherwise it doesn't taste. Yeah, otherwise it doesn't taste yeah. good. Everybody knows that. All the Europeans are like confused and horrified. Like, why my wife is about? no, my wife's just like, I hate this so much. Like, why <laughs> does he like this? But yeah, no, it's, cranberry sauce in a can is delicious, folks. Yeah, but o- but only this one time of year. Yeah, the rest well, of the time. Yeah. But my I have my to say about it. My point, my more, you know, I'm in a, like a perhaps for reasons that will become a, a, a more clear later. I'm in a more like um, you know meta frame of mind or whatever. Uh, not the startup or startup, <laughs> not the, not the tech large company. tech company, uh, that, that just because the can company designed the can thinking that, 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 that people would print the label in one direction, therefore the, the top would be the part you opened it from just because they did that. And then Heinz or whatever, ocean spray puts the label the other way. It doesn't mean that you're opening it like that's that's not the top anymore. Now it's just the bottom. You just open it from the bottom. Yeah. So there's a question is like, is the top of the can, the part of the can above the text when the text is oriented yes. in the way that a human would? Or is the top of the can the part that opens? And I would say the top of the can is like when at the can manufacturing, because the can making plant doesn't know that this is going to be. Yeah, just, they intend the top to be on a certain side, but I don't care. Yeah, the can. As far as the can creating uh, factory thinks that this is the opening part is the top of the can. For and sure, probably refer to it that way. But then Ocean Spray is like, no, 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 you can't tell us how to That's do right. things. That's right. Like, I don't put care what you say is the top. We're we, and now the top, decide, bottom, bottom's the top. We decide the top of our product. Yeah, exactly. So I think the top is whichever side you you know. I you guess you could get more more even more like uh interesting with this and say well is the top what ocean spray tells you the top is or you just listen to the man man and it's whatever side you put it up <laughs> yeah well if you if you're like you can't control me and then you stock it with the label upside down yeah then and then you can't get the stuff you have to def- defile it with a knife in order to get it out of the the top is whichever side is on top I mean, at the yeah. moment, at the moment that you're looking at the can. Well, with, uh, hmm. so like if you rotate it, suddenly the top, st- like the top is just relative. So like if you turn it on its side, then the top is the side. Yeah. Now. No, well, when you talk about if you point at a can and say like, I feel like we've gotten off track. No, if you point at a can and say like, you know, tap that on the top, you would tap whichever. Like it's 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 situational, obviously. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, the I would say that in the case of Ocean Spray and the canning company or the can manufacturer company. I think Ocean Spray wins that one. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, thank you. I just I like this uh, little detail because it's one of those like things where um, they did a very simple change that took almost no cost or but helped really, everyone. Just kind of, it's just a thought idea or just it's an idea, a thought technology, which is like, hey, if we put the label upside down, then everyone has a bit of an easier time well, with this and, thing. I mean, you're you know uh, slightly younger than me, but we're of a similar age. Do you? I'm sure you remember. Well, I don't know if you had them in Canada, but I did. You have the Heinz ketchup commercials which were all about how you needed to wait for the ketchup to come out. Yes, I, uh, I've seen this. Which is a genius marketing idea, right? Because they're taking... If you're in the marketing department, you're like, well, what can I do? People don't like that it takes so long for right. the ketchup to come out. But it's like, you, well, let's if, make it a thing. If good marketing, like great marketing, takes something that is objectively not awesome 
and makes it something that you're like, oh, okay. You know, like it makes it, Mm -hmm. you turn a weakness into a strength or whatever. And and I mean, whether or not they totally pulled that off, I don't know, but those were good ads. They were fun. And, but I also remember like, you know, being a kid and you're like trying to get the ketchup out and it's like not coming and you're like banging it or you're doing stuff and then way too much of it comes at once and then you're sad. Mm -hmm. So they flipped it around and, and now it's just really easy to get the ketchup out. I mean, squeeze bottles help too, but still it's just way easier to get ketchup out. I don't even like ketchup. That's a fun fact for no one but i it is easy to get ketchup out now yeah and and in this way there's little ideas there's something kind of brings me joy there's little ideas that when we come across them yeah uh from then on that thing is better it doesn't necessarily mean that it was more expensive to make that or whatever no it could be cheaper it could be the same at any point like cranberry sauce canning was invented 100 years ago or something at any point in the past or future it might have been 100 more years before someone realizes like hey we could do this thing but once they do it it's like well it's obviously better and then that's just the way it is totally and for non-american slash canadians if you ever get a chance to try this you probably won't like it but it is delicious (laughs) you're like what is this thing (laughs) it's like a gelatinous delicious terrible treat holiday dishes tend to be that way like they they often they can be for sure you know certainly there's some exceptions but often there's like a holiday if something is something you only bring around in the holidays that may be an indication like is it that great yeah that's a good point so alan Mm. i want to take you on simultaneously two journeys backwards in time oh okay simultaneous backwards journeys in a four-dimensional time yeah so one of those journeys is a few weeks, but a few weeks. Okay. The other journey, thousands of years. Okay. All right. This so, feels, it feels like a CGP Gray video <laughs> intro. I have prepared 152 different audio clips. <laughs> that you have to now. click through. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no. Uh, fun fact. Julius Caesar mm. was never the emperor of Rome. Mm-hmm. But was he kind of, though? <laughs> no. <laughs> But close. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So this so, is following up on the last episode. I say expressed a little bit of yes, uncertainty about if you are, are absolute con- in control of an empire, that yeah. kind of sounds like an emperor. Yeah. So I, I spent too much time looking into this, I will say. Mm-hmm. I, I, had a great, I had a great time. And it's, it's just easy to find yourself thinking about the Roman Empire. <laughs> well, and I want to talk about that because I, I have a um, – I would like to discuss that concept when we're done with the fact. Okay. But so – uh, I looked into this and yeah, like you said, we were talking about that and it turns out there's, you know, like with many things, there's a lot of nuance here. So I, I found that fascinating. I thought I would share that with you and by, uh, you know, affect everyone else listening. So we need to learn a little bit about how things worked in the Republican era of Rome. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like pre, the first pre-Caesar era. Yeah, the, the pre and including Caesar era, mm-hmm. as you'll see. So during that era the ultimate level of rulership over the Republic was the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, and then there were many levels of like other leadership below that. It was actually quite a bureaucratic state. There were like a lot of different uh, groups who performed various functions and different roles and things like that with the Senate basically at the top. And there was, as I think I mentioned in the previous episode, the concept of a dictator, mm-hmm. but dictator in a Roman Republican sense was a very different concept than we would think of as a dictator today. So a dictator in their sense, and they used that word, uh, was given full authority to deal with a specific problem. A temporary role. Well, not it's. I think I said on the last episode that it was time-based, but it wasn't. It was problem-based. So they Mm -hmm. were given something that needed to be solved and were, like, given authority to resolve that situation. And 
they did have more or less the full powers of the state because the idea was that they could just buy, like bypass the bureaucracy, bypass red tape, just get things done. And then once the issue was resolved, they surrendered those powers immediately. Yeah. So interestingly enough, so the dictator, it, it sounds like a, a, a pretty powerful job, and it was, but it wasn't all powerful. They were still under the control of the Senate, who had oversight authority. They were also uh, underneath the control of the plebeian tribunes who could veto the actions. Oh, even when they were dictator. Yeah, and the dictator's mandate determined like what they could do with their authority, like what it had to be related to what they were doing. Hmm. And and I found this fascinating. They were liable f- for prosecution after the term was completed. Oh, so, like that's clearly a check and balance situation, yeah. right? Like like we will sue you if you <laughs> if you do things that were not really about being the dictator, right? So and I didn't look this up, but I was I, I I'm curious, and maybe someone out there knows, or maybe I'll get bored and look it up at some point. If there was any dictator who did get sued, and if it was uh, either for abuse of power or if they did something that they knew they would get sued for, but needed they felt like they needed to do it in order to achieve their dictator goal, right? Sort of the um, hypocritic oath idea of like you you're a doctor, Abraham Lincoln's been shot, you're gonna set the person's leg, even though you know you're gonna be tried for you know, treason and you expect that afterwards, but you still do it because you're a doctor. Mm-hmm. Right? You see what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. At any rate, uh, Caesar was named dictator multiple times, but the first time, which happened after he crossed the Rubicon, which again is a river that he crossed in sort of semi invading Rome. It only lasted 11 days. Oh, wow. And it was intended to let him conduct new elections. Cause his issue was about the consuls for that year. Now, of course he was elected as one of those consuls. So that's the thing that happened, but consul clearly not an emperor. Right. Right. And then over time, he was named dictator for like longer periods of time. And eventually it sort of became like an, a kind of a running annual appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, he was named dictator for life in 44 BC. So that's some pretty strong emperor evidence. Yeah. But he was assassinated two months later. Oh. And I think the biggest thing on the not emperor totem or whatever on that side of the scale is that he didn't actually he wasn't able to recreate the Roman Republican state. He just sort of took a new a version of a role that already existed semi at the top. He was he was never formally titled as king because many people associated that term with uh, oppression, uh, probably from the early pre-Republican days of the Roman uh, situation. But he was clearly headed in a king-like, empire-like direction. And to your point from last week, the Republic does meet, that era does meet a lot of the common criteria for something being an empire. So I looked that up a little bit. So You need a central government that controls territories beyond its borders. Clearly, clearly they had that. You need a uh, to control diverse cultural groups through through force with an unequal relationship between the ruling party and the subordinate peoples. I think we clearly have that. Mm -hmm. But there was still a functioning Republican government apparatus at the time of the death of Caesar. Like, I think if he had lived, he probably would have become emperor. He was on track. He was on track to be emperor. But when he died, it actually led to a new triumvirate. Of Lepidus, Mark Antony, and Octavian, his great nephew and adopted son, who later did become emperor. So I think, you know, the fact that Octavian, who followed him, was initially granted his power by the Senate. They hadn't fully it was him. De- de- it had not fully devolved into just authoritarian dictatorship or what we would think of as That's right. That like yet. when Caesar died, all the power just went back to the to the existing situation. Right. And he was still thought of as the exceptional temporary just, it's right. just him that was do, doing this. That's right. And Octavian was the one who created the imperial state, dismantled all of the pieces of the Republic, hmm. and replaced it with absolute power held by a hereditary leader. 
Of course, because like, Caesar by that point had moved the Overton window. If Caesar had yeah, exactly. first had the, exposed everyone to like, hey, this is the thing that maybe is okay or can be done, you know, and then the next person is like, yeah, let's let's keep that up. Let's go back right, to exactly. So I would say that, you know, in that sense, Caesar was sort of like a test project for mm-hmm. Emperor, mm-hmm. but he ultimately didn't get there because, you know, A2 Brute, but his quote unquote son was the first one to really make it happen. And they never turned back like no, that that's the other thing. At that point, every following ruler was an emperor. And this is a like, classic problem. Like once you get into emperor or dictator, like total, uh, total authority, uh, it tends not to go back. It's, it's more challenging to, to, to revert. Yeah. Interestingly, as I think I also mentioned in the previous episode, you know, the word Kaiser in German comes from his name. So Octavian took it as part of his name, but then, and the, and for like the, the Julian Caesar, that family, because they were emperor for a while, right? When, when their line died out and the next family took over, that's when Caesar stopped being a name and became a title. Right. Uh, and then eventually, of course, like I said, it becomes Kaiser in German and Tsar in the Slavic languages. So here's a sub fun fact. And then I have another one, but the first sub sub fun fact for like 2000 years after Caesar died, there was at least one head of state somewhere in the world who was using his name. Mm, like Kaiser or czar. I never, czar, I never, czar, I never would have connected. Honestly, I wouldn't have connected Kaiser until you mentioned it last episode, but czar, I also yeah. never would have connected as that being yeah. a Caesarian. Yeah. Relationship. That's some pretty good. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a pretty good, like staying power though. Yeah. Right? And, the other thing I found before interesting... we before we get too far into that, I just want to like carve off it's something I'm very curious about. So oh, this yeah. this you see you said how he, he got named dictator for life, and then two minutes later he gets assassinated by Brutus. Famously, um, was was Brutus's beef that he had been named dictator for life and he didn't like that, or was it just coincidence that it was two months after he was named that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Uh, I think that there there was my understanding was that there was a. Um, the, the plan, well, I know that it wasn't because of that. Cause I know that the plan started quite a bit before he was actually assassinated. Oh, okay. So he, he was assassinated in like, I think March of 44 and it started in summer of 45, something like that. So it was, it was, um, kind of, it was around for quite a while. I think that, uh, the, he, my understanding, and again, I'm not, I didn't intend to talk about this, but my understanding was that he had like a coalition that he had built during the civil war and it was kind of breaking down. Right. And, um, they, a lot of those, like other people who had kind of supported him at that time were kind of not as excited about, uh, supporting him anymore, primarily because they would have been candidates in the consular elections. And, you know, um, he was kind of having sham elections at that point, more or less. Uh, and so they didn't actually like, like that. So that's kind of like the other reason why I say he wasn't really emperor. Cause he got, he essentially got overthrown before he could be emperor. But like, uh, yeah, they, they basically just like, uh, public opinion kind of turned against him and he, he had policies that people didn't like. I mean, you know, it just wasn't, yeah, it's, you know, he was very like, actually the, the, the fact I was going to share next kind of, I think ties into what happened to him, which is that, um, he, he, in addition to all of everything I I said, I said, a lot of the early populist leaders, like think of like Napoleon and then later Mussolini they identified themselves pre-populism as a term as Caesarists, oh, which interesting. was meant to indicate that their belief that the rule should be by a charismatic strong man using a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. So he kind of creates, at least in Europe, he creates that concept of like, you know, populist dictator. And I think what we've seen is that often when someone like that does actually get elected or get chosen or becomes the ruler, uh, you know, 
the, the, the popularity fades when they actually have to do stuff because you do some anything and someone's going to be upset. Yeah, of course. Right? So, but it always yeah. sounds nice like, oh, man, it'd be so much simpler if we just hit away with all this bureaucracy. We could be so much more efficient if we could just decisively right. do things. That's right. And, and I mean, you know, it, when you have that system, not everything is bad. Uh, you know, some, some stuff is good and some stuff is bad, no matter what your perspective is, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, there's going to be something you like and something you don't like. The problem is it's, it's completely at the whims of one person. And that generally doesn't, it very rarely in history does that work out well. But so I, um, so I found all that fascinating and I think we, we now agree not an emperor, but very close, mm-hmm. um, uh, really, uh, you know, almost made it there. Didn't quite get there, but I, I, the subject that I want to discuss now is, uh, we we've joked now on two episodes about this thing where you know men think about the Roman Empire yeah. a lot. Why do you think that is? Why do I think men think about the Roman Empire a lot? Well, because yeah, you claim you think about it a lot. I claim that I think about it just a normal amount. <laughs> just yeah, every, you say every couple every, of weeks? I don't know. Like every couple of weeks, every couple of days, every week or two. You know. Well, I I, I definitely feel like I think about. Um, historical events a lot more than I used to because I now have okay. a podcast where we talk about facts and then I have a, <laughs> a kid sense. who's seven years old and is constantly asking me complicated questions like, who started World War II and why, right? And then I'm like, oh. Wow, so just like, hold on. Your kid is is six. Seven? She's seven now. But like through ages five, six, and seven, like she she's really- How did she even know- well, it comes from a string of questions. Like at the end of the day, it's bedtime. She starts winding down. Yeah. Her brain starts opening up and she starts yeah. thinking and wondering about things. And so it'll come from like, okay, we just had Remembrance Day. And she'll say, she'll ask a question like, um, is there is there going to be a war in Canada? And so I, I mean, I try to give like age appropriate questions like, uh-huh. well, you know, wars, we're very lucky in Canada. We've been very, there has not been much uh, war here and it would be very surprising or so i'll say something like that like, you know <laughs> you, i just say like, oh, it we would be very that. surprising I yeah it would be very that. surprising we're a pe- you know we're a peaceful country or something like that and then she okay. thinks about it for a while and then maybe the next night or later the night she, you know she asks um oh if there's a war would you be in it and you know and then i'm like Ooh, oh i'm probably wow. too i'm probably too old and you know i have kids so probably you know, not but like it, it's an interesting challenge it lets you it, it lets you you know that explain like i'm five thing that you build a deeper understanding of things that you maybe haven't really thought too much about. Um, And so, but then through those answers, she slowly learns more about things. So like one of the questions she asked was, what was the worst war? Oh. And so I'm like, okay. So I sort of describe a little bit about very like high level World War II. Oh, there was this one and it was in Europe and it was really bad. And then there was this bad guy and he was trying to take over the world. That's kind of the amount of detail I gave to this question. Yeah, fair. And then, so then later she asks, in the worst war, did kids die? Oh, right. Right. And then so like yeah. these questions build on and I and I try to not lie, but I also try to not give more no, yeah, detail. You can't to you, lie. Right. You don't yeah. want to lie, but also no. like you try to just kind of focus on and, and, and try to build it in a way that you reveal information that maybe gives a little bit of understanding. But it also just cause undue anxiety that like now World War Three is starting tomorrow and we're, it's going to be in our town. Right. Which is just. Yeah, that's the uh, that that, by the way, is a is a real challenge i think because i i have to do the four-year-old version of Mm -hmm. this right and and it's not at that age i mean he doesn't know what war is but he'll ask things like you know about death Mm -hmm. and that's that's a big thing on his mind like oh they did they are they is this person still alive or dead like he'll ask about relatives if i talk about my grandparents or things like that and then he'll be like why did they die or like why do we have to die or i don't want to die this that thing and we have to talk it through and i'm like 
you know, I, I have to be, I'm like, I, you know, I, I want to be honest about how I feel about that subject and everyone probably has their own take, but I also, I'm trying really, really hard to like give him information that is, you know, helpful to the place he's coming from, but isn't going to trigger him like not being able to sleep. Yeah. Right. Cause he's, and, and I mean, only once so far have I actually said, had to be like, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about this when you're older. Cause I, I forget how I handled it. I don't think that's exactly what I said, but he, you know, he was, at, you know, there's some serious uh, stuff in my family's history that you know about. And he asked a question in that direction. And it's just like, Oh yeah, there's no four year old, uh, acceptable, like, you know, version of this yes. right now. Right. Like, so I, I'm just like, uh, okay, well, you know, it's, uh, it's complicated to keep, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't remember what I said, but I had to kind of get out of that. But again, I didn't lie. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's really, really, really important, certainly to me not to lie about it, but it, it does present quite a challenge. Yeah. I, I got a long way before I, I kind of had this mental model. It's like, no, I think I should be able to give an answer. And then I, I got, a little bit more recently, I've got a couple of questions that kind of verge into like sort of questions that in order to answer the question appropriately, I kind of had to explain the concept of like, for example, like sexual violence. No, oh, good Lord. And then it's okay. like how I don't think I am. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not prepared to answer this question in a way. And so, yeah. and, but like it is it, like um, body safety and things like that are really yeah, important, important things you want to teach to kids. But very like important. it can be difficult off, off the top of your head when ask a question of like, oh, why wouldn't you or why, you know, she had the concept that like um, adults could get in trouble for something interacting with kids in some way or, uh, you know, something wow. around body safety thing. And then she like asked like kind of the next layer question behind that. And I was like, how? I think it might have been like, oh, why would grownups want to do that or something like that? And oh, I was just like, yeah. and I'm like, and and I just I, I pride myself in being able to like take a moment and and explain yeah. something in like a, a yeah. safe thoughtful way. But in that one, I was just like, uh, hmm, I don't know. I don't I don't have a I don't I do so. Yeah, you know? I actually think that that's great. Like I uh, one thing I have really done intentionally with um my kids is well, it's two things actually. One is saying like not on this subject, but like if they're if they want to know something about something that I just don't know. Uh, I'd, but it's a, not a, you know, not a, it's an age appropriate question. I'll just be like, Oh, I don't know. Should we try to find out? And then we go and, and mm-hmm. look Oh up. yeah. I'm, I'm really eager to do that. And that's, I think one of those, like, Oh, I get a chance to like show my values, like express curiosity. Totally. And I'll like talk out loud what, how I'm doing it, mm-hmm. you know, like, Oh, I'm going to search for this. And then I'll say what I'm searching for. Cause mm-hmm. I find that there's plenty of grownups who just do not know how to write a search, for <laughs> but, um, get them started but, like, early. But when it's something that, you know, like that, you know, you have to be willing. I think as a parent, it's also really important that you have to be willing to say, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what do you think or whatever? But like, you don't, I don't know is like a very important thing to say because, you know, it normalizes that they could not know something. And of course, they don't know anything. But, you know, you don't want to teach kids that, that, you know, they need to pretend like they know stuff when they don't know it. Yeah. It was the same. It's in the same vein of the thing that I'm always going way out of my way because I struggle with as a kid is like practice is great. It's like, oh, but this thing came up poorly. It's like, well, you know what? That's great because then you practice and now it can be better next time or whatever. Yeah, you're practicing. The point is not to be great at everything. Yeah. There's a great Kurt Vonnegut quote about that that now I'm blanking on, but something about like being good at things isn't the point of doing them. Yes. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's like, 
the point is for the fun or the doing or the learning or the experience or whatever, you know, but the, the, but the point is not, what do you say? I don't think being good at things is the point of doing them. I think you've got all these wonderful experiences with different skills and that all teaches you things and makes you an interesting person, no matter how well you do them. Well, and that builds on an idea we've mentioned, I think once on the show is this idea of, uh, atelic versus telic activities, that is a term that I do not remember us talking about. So a telic activity is what you default think of when you're trying to accomplish a task. Well, why do you go to university? Probably so you can maybe get your degree. You can finish yeah, it. Yeah, and learn this thing. And yeah. This thing. And like, wh- why do you uh, do most of the things, especially early in your life, a lot of your big goals, it's like, I want to get a job so I can have an income, so I can have a home, so I can live, you know, and I want right. to f- get food so that I don't die of starvation or whatever your like base layer goals. But then as you get further into your career and further into your life and further along in a lot of stuff, a lot of your those things are checked off and you have some of your basic needs met. And then you have more uh, opportunity to have a midlife crisis and or uh, to Hmm. blossom into a fully adult human where some of the stuff you do is not for the completion of the thing, but for the middle part where it's like, oh, well, I'm going to take up this hobby where I'm doing this thing that uh, maybe I'm painting, but not to to be my job but just because i like the act of it and i don't maybe even care if anyone sees my paintings or maybe i i'm singing or maybe i'm walking in the forest or maybe i'm spending more time socializing with friends but like i'm socializing with friends not to have checked it off hopefully it's to have have be in the process of, of doing that um and so that's that's like a i think a useful mental model for folks like ourselves, which are getting into that kind of middle career where we've checked, we've got maybe accomplished a lot of the things we imagined when we were maybe 15. That's like, oh, I want to have done these things. Uh, and then you have done a lot of those. And then it's like, well, how should I be spending my time? And if you're, you're, you're only focused on achieving as opposed to the, the doing part, um, then uh, it, can, it can lead you a bit off track. Very well said, although I will like to point out that none of that answers the question about why do you think about the Roman Empire so much? Well, it, it answered the part of it is that explaining things to my kids, it will come up like, like, oh, well, where, when, how did they invent pipes? And like, you know, oh, well, you know, what's, uh, you know, what's an emperor or what is it? What is an empire or whatever? You know, mm. so questions will come up sometimes where they'll, okay. they'll touch on that. Um, or yeah. I'll be doing research for a fact like, oh, when, when did this, how long did honey, um, last and then it's like oh someone dug up honey from the roman empire or whatever roman so empire. i do get yeah. exposed to it more from that okay um, fair enough but why else like why do i think i think there's um in uh, and I, maybe this is is actually um just from exposure to to our uh media and reading and stuff like that maybe something we've done as a society is like kind of building up um, previous empires, but especially the Roman Empire, like yeah. um, in, in in terms of being like this is a really uh, important uh, historical moment. It's like the originator of a bunch of cultural things. I would yeah. say I think of the of like the Greek, like the I don't know what, I don't know what to city call states. Yeah, the Greek city states also often disproportionately more to maybe how important they are. Like I think of the Greek city states and the stories and the mythology of that a lot more often than I think of like the equivalents uh, in. Uh, India or China or things like that, even though those probably also originated maybe equal or more amounts of technology and things like that. Um, but I think there's just a disproportional amount of our media and stories and things in our language and culture, I think, that that represent those stories. I don't know. It's not, it's not yeah. a very well-formed answer to your question. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was around for like 600 years. Right. You probably don't think about it very much. 
No, when the Ottoman Empire comes up, I often it's in the context of like World War One, and that's not like the most interesting. No, but the Ottoman Empire Empire. was around for a really long time and did a lot of very interesting things. Yeah. And you just don't think about it. And the Byzantine Empire, which you probably don't think of as the Roman Empire, lasted for like a thousand years. Right. And like the, you know, there's, you know, and obviously various Chinese empires. I mean, there's just like a lot of empires that lasted for just an insanely long time. Mm -hmm. Right. And the Ottoman Empire at its absolute peak, which I think was like in the uh, 1680s, something like that, was massive. Right, like covered huge portions of the uh, of the known world, right? Like all of like the North Africa, the Middle East, up through you know even into Europe, even into like you know modern day uh, uh, Bulgaria and and places like that, like Moldavia and different places. It, it was huge, right? So it's just it's just so fascinating that that the Roman Empire is the one that really captures, and I imagine that that's partially true because you know many americans are descendants of people from roman occupied places yeah yeah i mean certainly i've i've there's been times where i was thinking through or uh reading about something about somewhere in western europe in france or in england or in ireland or something like that unless so maybe a little bit less so in ireland but then like a story will be like oh actually this city was founded as a roman or it was like reformed as a roman or whatever and so like it threads come up in these Western European historical... That's right, because it's all of Europe, basically. I mean, it's all of Western and Eastern Europe, all the way through, you know, modern-day Turkey, all the way to, you know, modern-day uh, Middle East, all the way to North Africa, all the way... You know, it's it's massive at its peak, which, by the way, was in 117 AD, the peak mm-hmm. of the Roman Empire, at the time of Trajan's death. But, like, it's just, you know... Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think about the Roman Empire that often. I've said this before. I don't think I think about it that often. So I just find it fascinating that you do, and apparently many men do. And I don't. We could also get into why men, but like it's just just a fascinating subject to me. Why why Roman Empire? Well, I think I there, there's a there's an underlying fascinating subject, which is like, and which a sociologist and and historians and I think there's a lot. I'm sure there's been a lot of actual scholarly work done on this question, and and so I'm very kind of naive to it. But the the things that uh, take up a lot of air and take a lo- up a lot of space in our culture and in yeah. our writing and in our minds. Like, like why do I think about uh, Tokyo and Paris and London and New York a hundred mm-hmm. times as much yeah. as I think of like Dhaka, Bangladesh? Yeah, right. Like Mexico City or, or like uh, like Bang- Bangladesh has like one of the top ten biggest cities in the world. But how often do people in our cultural bubble? talk about that and like there's there's some reasons for that that are just sort of pragmatic of like oh where are the big exporters of culture where it's like like i think of uh, korea a lot more often than i might think of some other countries with the same population right. because there's more right. like a, you know, i watch squid game or i there's a k-pop song or whatever so like cultural export it can be some of it some of it can be what is taught in our history classes like you know we they have a tendency and obviously to focus on certain things so you learn about like mesopotamia and then maybe you learn yeah. about this one culture uh here and one culture there but it's not like proportional it's not like we have 10 minutes on every culture that ever existed back to you know. i mean i literally did not know that dhaka bangladesh was a city until you <laughs> there's 20 that. million people and it's the what, ninth biggest city in the world yeah, apparently 10 million people of, official although you well then there's like the agglomerations yeah. Yeah, yeah it depends yeah, how you sure. rank it yeah yeah of course but it's the ninth biggest city in the world i definitely think have thought about the previous eight 
way more often than I think about that one. Right. Like Tokyo, Delhi, Shanghai, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, Cairo, Mumbai, Beijing. I've literally never heard the word Dhaka, Bangladesh, to my knowledge, before now. I mean, it's it's kind of like when you realize that in India alone there are like, you know, or in China actually is a better example. There are like multiple cities or regional areas in China with like more people than any city in the United States. Oh, right? yeah. China is a great example of that, that there's like this like fractal detail there that if you if you're not familiar with china much at all you'll you'll you know probably okay shanghai and beijing and hong kong or whatever you kind of go and then you know there's more to it than that but the you yeah. know, oh yeah china hand wave but then it's just like there are cities that are like you know more than the population of many countries right that you've never heard of or never and maybe you know now you know like a shenzhen or something because of you know tech or something but right like there are all these giant cities in in China that have so many people in it, and, and you've just never you've just never heard of it. Yeah, and I was naively in like until not too long ago, I was pretty in, and I had this naive conception of China as being a lot more homogenous than it is. I kind of thought of mm. it as like, well, you know, you know, maybe kind of cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong that were originally colonies that had some more foreign influence, maybe have more sort of variance in in, in the. Uh, culture and architecture than the other cities but then there's all these cities that have maybe been centrally planned and they're all kind of similar and the populations are relatively homogenous but in practice like there's so many like sub dialects and like subcultures and there's different totally. food influences and there's like the muslim part of the country and like things like that like there's totally. all these all these like patchworks that have made up this like history of this billion person country that were mostly in our culture like just kind of isolated from uh, any of that detail there are seven cities in china with more than 10 million people more than 10 million which is like twice the size of the largest city in canada <laughs> yeah and i mean the largest city in the u.s is you know new york at eight or whatever so you know i mean metro area gets a little bit different but like it's just completely crazy and then the other the other one that i think of like that and we are really just hilariously far <laughs> good, but i'm enjoying it is the number of languages in india that ha- that have like you know tens of millions of speakers uh, uh that you've never heard the name yeah yeah i right. i got deep into this when we i think did we talk about rrr on the show uh do I yeah mean when i, I say this this, yes, this like indian blockbuster action movie and i was like trying to look up i'm like okay well i knew it was in this it was uh recorded in this one language but then it's like oh but then it's dubbed into all these other languages i'm like well i feel like i should watch it in its original language but that was actually like harder to do than i thought and so that kind of like revealed me into this like the depth of complexity there is in like in uh, cultural and language groups within india and it's like a way more complex and uh, multifaceted country than i had realized there there are 13 languages in india which with more than 10 million first language speakers right like you know and many of them are spoken way more than any european language that you that you know almost any european language right like minus like german Right, like, you know, like, you know, it's just insane. I mean, there are 528 million people whose first language is Hindi. Okay. But there's also uh, 34 million people whose first language is Malayalam, which I am learning of now and am not pronouncing correctly, I'm sure. 
And and then you also end up with these sub like bubbles and and things like I would think of like I knew knew maybe I wouldn't say of course but like I was I think it's relatively well known that like Hindi is the most common language in uh, India. Sure. But I, if you had asked me ten years ago, well, what's the second most common language in India? I would say well, it's probably Punjabi because all most of the Indian people that I know here in Vancouver uh, are from that region and that that language. Eleventh. It's eleventh, right? Yeah. There's no 10 languages more common in India than that. Uh, But then there's like this concentration of of expats who've come from. That's right. It's who you know, right? Number two, by the way, is Bengali. Number three is Marathi. I know someone who speaks Marathi. Uh, Telugu, Tamil, Gujarati. I mean, there's just so many of these. You know, it's just, you know, crazy. I mean, I recently learned about that. that, I mentioned a language on a previous episode that um, someone at work speaks, Canada, that I had never heard of before. It has 44 million native speakers, right? Like, I, you know, it's just insane. It's it's wild. So those kinds of things where you just, you know, it's such a, in some sense, it's such a small world that, that, that we live in. So maybe then it's like, well, the Roman Empire is the only empire. And then it's like the Persian Empire is fascinating and nobody knows about it, uh, you know in the in the u.s or in canada for the most part yeah i think there's a bit of um uh a tendency in media because so much of our awareness of obviously the the world and our entire history is more complicated than any one person could fully understand every single detail of every single story um for sure. but there's a disproportionate over representation and re-representation of stories that we're already kind of familiar with and so yeah. if if a story was going to be branded or is going to be a movie or is going to be a book they're going to disproportionately represent something that you've already heard of a retelling of the greek mythology that you've already kind of familiar with yeah rather oh, but than, all new you've right. never seen it like this before folks right rather than there was this like really interesting story from 1800s india you know what i mean like not i that want that movie yeah that's my stake in the ground how the heck are we going to end this podcast we're doing a podcast <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what year is it? <laughs> Here's some follow up you wanted to. Take. I have a little bit of follow up. Here's let's cap this off. So last episode we were talking about bees, bees, um, bees. nature's uh, bees, Ma- bees, nature's bees. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you asked the question, well, why do bees make honey? And I speculated that they make honey to feed their to young. Feed their young. That's what you said. You said we, that, that is not why. They don't, that's podcast. not the reason I said I speculated that I think I was clear yeah. that I was guessing but I was like yeah that seems true I think you were too. that's not why they don't no? do it for that reason no why do they do it they do it to survive the winter oh that keeps them warm it's like there are little acorns in the tree no like they eat it when there's no oh it's because they're going around there's no other stuff in the flowers right the flowers, the flowers are gone. Away. They need something to eat. Yeah, and so bees, uh, a lot, uh, uh, some species of bees and, and wasps and stuff, the colony kind of dies out, and then just like the queen will will winter over um, and then restart again. Um, but honeybees, they make honey, and then uh, some of the bees. Apparently, there's like certain bees get born that are maybe more hardy in the, the winter that can survive longer. But they uh, eat the honey that keeps them alive, and then the colony doesn't have to start from like a single individual uh, next year. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is incredibly interesting. Uh, and it turns out that the truth is more interesting than the speculation. Yeah, I like that more than the feed. The feed the young is just kind of cliche, you know. Yeah, it's kind of like obvious. Yeah, there you go. That's why bees bees make honey. Um, but still, you still shouldn't eat the cursed honey. Don't eat the cursed honey. 